Goldie Hawn trades cheers for fears. While Ernest P. Whirl faces off against an ancient curse. Coming up next on Out of Touchdown. Okay, I gotta admit, there was not a whole lot of songs to pull from from these two movies, but I would never pass up an opportunity to use one from a member of the police. That right there is Andy Summers with a song called World Gone Strange. Mostly instrumental, but I kinda like it. It's been a little jazzy groove. It comes from a first movie we're gonna discuss, which had a mostly jazzy soundtrack as well. Welcome to Out of Touchstone. Happy New Year! Uh, my name is Mike DeKalb. Uh, across the other end of the Skype line is my co-host, Chad Smart. Chad, how are you doing this this new year? Uh, you know, it's a new year. It's a new me. I hope. We'll see. Come talk to me again at the end of 2021, and we'll see if I lived up to my uh, my New Year resolution of constantly breaking my New Year's resolutions. <laughs> Well, what's funny was on our last episode, we discussed a couple of movies that I thought were very underrepresented. You don't really hear a lot about. And while we may have had mixed reviews, I still thought people should have seen them. Whereas the two movies we're going to discuss on today's episode, I feel like I could not wait for them to be over when I was in the middle of watching them. So we're just going to go right to our first one. It was released on September 27th of 1991. And it is Touchstone's newest member of the thriller genre. It is called Deceived. So what are you doing tonight? Tomorrow night. The rest of your life. Adrian Davis thought she'd met the perfect man. Until she realized he was nothing he said he was. Suddenly I'm a liar. Oh my God. I don't know who he is. Who knows anybody else really? Everything I believed in was a lie. Goldie Hawn. Deceived. PG-13. Starts tomorrow at a theater near you. Yes, as I mentioned, uh, this, I think I counted, this is only either the fourth or fifth thriller that Touchstone has done. Depends on if you count Stakeout as a thriller or a comedy thriller. You're looking at Shoot to Kill, DOA. Chad, do you consider An Innocent Man to be a thriller? I mean, it's more of a prison drama. Mm-hmm. I think it, it just seems like they're more comedy-based. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. That yeah, I wouldn't put An Innocent Man in the thriller category. Uh, and I wouldn't even put stakeout in the thriller comedy area category. That uh, would be more comedy. Um, this one, ooh, I cannot wait to get into this discussion. So, and okay. I will just say, you know, for people listening, I, I'm not going to. I'll try to avoid spoiling the ending ending of the film, but there are some things in the climax that I might throw out there. So, if you want to, you know, potentially watch this film, maybe hit pause, go watch it, come back, pick <laughs> up our discussion. But uh, just be forewarned. There may be some minor spoils ahead. Okay, well, do I'm going to do my best to not spoil anything as well. But all right, so let's how the film was developed. The story and screenplay is by a a woman who we just talked about in the last episode. Actually, it was Mary Agnes Donahue. She was she had just directed and written the adaptation of 
paradise for Touchstone. That movie came out, I believe, nine days before Deceived. <laughs> um, she had been developing this script for a while, and the working title that she had was simply called The Misses. Uh, as the film was developing, the first director that was attached was the great Alan Pakula. You know, he had done some really good conspiracy thrillers in the 70s, like Parallax View and All the President's Men. He'd also done Sophie's Choice. Uh, the development continues, and the next director that was attached was Mark Rydell. Uh, he'd done Cinderella Liberty, On Golden Pond. He did The River. I think, Chad, you said you watched The River when we talked about country in our early discussion of the touchstone. That is correct. Yes, I wanted to compare the two movies and... The River is a good film. I would check it out. Recommend you. So then by the time the movie uh, Deceived does go into production, the director that is ultimately hired is Damien Harris. He is the son of the famous Irish actor Richard Harris, first Dumbledore for those uh, Harry Potter fans. Um, Damien Harris attended film school at NYU. He directed a couple of short films, and then he just made his directorial debut in 1989 with a film called The Rachel Papers which was one that I've always wanted to see. I've heard a lot about it. It's got, I think it's got Ione Sky, Dexter Fletcher, who's now a film director of his own. He, did, he just directed Rocket Man. Um, and so I guess Donahue's script and Damien Harris's direction didn't quite mesh because supposedly as they were going through the production process, Damien Harris wanted Mary Donahue to make some changes. And when she declined, they had brought in another writer to punch it up. And that was Bruce Joel Rubin. He... He'd also gone to NYU film school in the 1970s. I read that he was classmates with Martin Scorsese and Brian De Palma, and he didn't move to Hollywood until the early 1980s. Uh, in 1983, he wrote the story for the film Brainstorm, which was Natalie Wood's final film. And then he did the adaptation for the 1986 Wes Craven movie, Deadly Friend. There's in that movie again. I, I've never seen it. You said you saw it when you were growing up? I saw it when I, when I was growing up. I saw it a few years ago at a, a Benson Interruption screening here in Los Angeles. It's... Hmm, okay. Uh, it's a product of its time. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Well, Ruben breaks through to the big time in 1990 with two films, Jacob's Ladder and also Ghost. And Ghost won him the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. I kept thinking about that scene at the beginning of Austin Powers 3 where they're making the movie of Austin Powers and he's on the and, and Austin's on the set. And he's like, and Steven Spielberg's the director. And he's like, okay, I have some notes. And then Spielberg shows his Oscar and was like, what was that? Did you, my friend Oscar thinks the film is fine. And so I, I picture this idea of, of uh, we're going to punch up the script and Donahue being like, oh, I don't want changes made to my script. And then Ruben shows up with his Oscar like, oh, I think I can do some work on this. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, it's interesting because interject real quick. I don't know if you saw this quote from Donahue. When she uh, was talking about refusing to to make the changes, and and she said there can't be two directors on a movie, why should writing be any different? The minute a movie yeah. is in production, it seems like every director immediately wants to get it rewritten in order to put his mark on it. And there's always a writer who will come in and rewrite a perfectly good screenplay. And that's, you know, here on on Out of Touchdown, we always talk about scripts being one or two rewrites away from being a good script. But it does fascinate me in the world of Hollywood that. Studios will buy a script and then immediately rewrite that script. And, you know, sometimes maybe there's a good idea that's just not there. But other times, if you, especially if you have a high-profile writer or a high-priced screenplay, like what are you buying to make, in, to make the movie based on, you know? So, yeah, you're buying know. an idea. I mean, look, yeah. well, could you imagine if Pretty Woman would have been made as 3,000? Like yeah. it's – sometimes you, you need that. Like I cringe a little bit when I, when I read her quote about, you know, you can't have two directors. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can, actually, you can. I've seen it. <laughs> I mean, usually, it's married couple, yeah, usually it's married couples or siblings, yeah. but 
still, you know, and then it, it feels like a director is always going to put their touch on it. And yeah. I, I think we talked about it. It may have been on the shoot to kill episode where with because I think that had like three or four writers, you know, to Turner and Hooch had five writers. <laughs> and I, I, I can't remember who which one of the writers, but there was a quote that basically said, like, every script is rewritten. You just you got you get over it. Like, mm-hmm. it's just it's fine. You make the most of it, what you can. And then you just accept it. And, you know, because it's, it's film is a collaborative art. Right. You need to have as many ideas coming in i think personally um interestingly enough i did see that bruce joel rubin for whatever reason i could not i could not find out why but he uses the pseudonym he uses the pseudonym Derek saunders saunders is the last name of uh, john hurd and goldie hahn in this film so I, I was wondering why he took a pseudonym on this one who knows um but i was reading that you know the film had been in development for a long time and once it got close to being green lit it kept getting delayed and they said one of the reasons for the continual delay was due to other commitments for our leading lady. As I mentioned, it was Goldie Hawn. At that point, she was Hollywood royalty, going all the way back to the late 1960s with her work on the TV show Laughing. She won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in 1969 for the film Cactus Flower. And then she continued in the 1970s with films like The Sugarland Express, Shampoo, really great movie called Foul Play. Um, and then by the time the 1980s roll around, she starts off with an Oscar nomination for Best Actress in Private Benjamin. And then she follows it up with a couple of with a string of, you know, big time comedies. And I say big time, meaning like ones where she's featured on the poster. Her name's above the title. You know, she does Swing Shift. And then she also did a movie called Protocol. And I mentioned Protocol because I, I can vividly remember seeing that on VHS. Like when, when VCRs first kind of became popular, I remember renting that movie because it was just to the video store. I can't tell you anything about it. I know it was set in Washington, D.C. and involves some kind of government thing. But it was just showing you like the power that she had where she was, like you said, it was just, it says, if you look at the poster, if you look at the, D, the VHS cover, it says Goldie Hawn protocol. Like that's, that's, that's big time. And at that time, I guess, in the early 1980s, uh, she follows up protocol with two of, I think, the best comedies of the 1980s. Uh, in 1986, she does Wildcats, which is, I still say is one of the best sports movies, one of my favorite sports movies. And then the 1987 film Overboard. That's that's a movie that I remember from my childhood, never saw it. But then when I was working at MGM after I came to Los Angeles, we had a screening at work. That movie is terrific, Chad. I'm assuming you probably saw that when you were growing up, right? Yeah, I'm, I think I had a copy of Overboard, you know, taped off of the cable presentation. And I, to this day, I am amazed at the number of people that I know who will name that as one of their top comedies and will start quoting this the movie like scene for scene. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, Overboard. I mean, I, I haven't seen the remake, which we're not here to discuss, but... No, um, no, don't watch it. But yeah, Goldie and Kurt together, you know? How could you yeah. go wrong? I love that one of the kids in Overboard, his name is Travis, but they call him Sweet Trav. I just remember Sweet Trav over and over again. Yeah, I never did see the remake. It was MGM had done that one, and I'm like, I guess they flipped the genders. We don't mm. need to see that. Um, the most recent film that Goldie had done before Deceived was the 1990 hit. It was a hit, Bird on a Wire. I remember seeing that in the theater. It came out around Memorial Day weekend, and I saw that it was top 20 at the box office in 1990. Yeah, Starring as her husband in the film is John Hurd. He also returns to Touchstone. He had starred in the 1988 film Beaches, which was written by Mary Agnes Donahue. I think we may have mentioned it on the Beaches episode, but that was one of seven films that John Hurd was in in 1988. Um, he continued to work steadily after that, starring in films like The Package, Awakenings. Of course, he played the father in Home Alone. I did see, you know, when you're looking at his resume, I couldn't help but notice that he's in three films 
that are simply one word title adjectives. He was in a movie called Betrayed. He's in a movie called Violated. And now he's in a movie called Deceived. So if you wanted movies with adjectives in the title, he was your man. He was also in a movie in 1990 called The End of Innocence. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, that's the Martin Scorsese film, right? No, that was The Age of Innocence. The End of Innocence was a movie about a woman who checked herself into rehab. And it was written and directed and stars Diane Cannon. I have no idea. I've never heard of that one. I, we, I think you were with me when we saw Diane Cannon at that one restaurant in yeah. Hollywood, right? Uh, just never did see him. Um, John Hurd's last film before Deceived was the indie film from 1991 called Rambling Rose, which had just been released in September, one month before uh, Deceived. Actually, should say earlier the same month. Yes. I know, Chet, we always looked at the supporting cast. For this film, you know, it was this is like a star-driven film. It was Goldie Hawn, again, her name above the title. It seemed like the supporting cast, no one in the supporting cast has any more than one scene with the principal actors. You know, there's one character, the Harvey character, which is a co-worker of Goldie Hawn's. He's played by Tom Irwin, and he was in movies like Light of Day, Midnight Run. He was on a TV show in 1991 with Helen Hunt and Megan Mullally called My Life and Times. It only aired six episodes before it was canceled. I never heard of that, but as soon as I saw him on screen, you can't help but recognize him. He played the dad on My So-Called Life. Um, But then from, from that point on, you know, there's... Every other person in the cast is just they're they're in the background for a scene or they're like I think there's a nanny character in the movie and she has like hardly any dialogue or any scenes alone with Goldie Hawn. It's really just Goldie Hawn, John Hurd, and then this this rotating cast of people that they come through that have one quick scene and they're out. And one of the actresses that does have one of those quick scenes is a woman named Amy Wright. And I only mention that because she had starred in the 1986 film Offbeat for Touchstone. I believe she was. Judge Reinhold's girlfriend that was like cheating on him the one time. I don't know if you remember Offbeat that well enough. No. And I was going to say, there's another actress and I don't have her name written down, but apparently she played Goldie Hawn's mother in the movie and is reduced to, I think like one scene. And yes. she's an Academy Award winning actress, I believe. Yes. is Beatrice Strait. I saw her name in the credits. And so I was like, this will be interesting. And I read that there, there I think it was on the IMDb trivia section said that, that perhaps her scenes were cut because she's in one scene, she's in the background, and, and she's only on screen for like four or five seconds. So you're like, ah, oh, that's good. Um, I guess we'll just get into our positive and negatives. I think, Chad, you had said off the air we should give a kind of a brief plot synopsis. Without giving away too much, we can simply say that uh, John Hurd and, and Goldie Hawn play a married couple, and then a mystery happens, and, Gold, and John Hurd dies – but then Goldie Hawn is trying to wonder, is he dead or not? Is he, did he fake his death? And so she has to do a little bit of digging and, and uncovering this mysterious past about him. So um, I'll just go ahead and kick it off to you, Chad. Can you give me a uh, first positive from Deceived? Yeah, I, you know, when I started watching this and Mary Agnes Donahue's name came up, I immediately had Paradise flashbacks and I went, this is going to be a slow film. Okay brace myself and it it is a very slow build but i have to say that after about the first 30 minutes when the major plot kicks into play i was intrigued as to what was going to happen next um so i I, I think the tone of the film and the pacing actually worked for for the story being told um yeah so that's what i got for the first positive is just it's a slow build but it works in building suspense no, I, I totally agree. That was actually one of my positives as well. I think the mystery in the film is very well set up. 
it's got to kind of got a slow burn. You're, you're right. Like the, the details gradually reveal themselves and the director takes his time to unveil them. You know, like Goldie's starting to suspect, okay, something's wrong. You know, it takes a little bit of time to figure out when, it, when the first death occurs. And then once we start getting an idea of what they do in their life, it's this whole labyrinthian plot about uh, art dealing and forgeries. And so like that first moment, the first scene when, when Goldie Hawn confronts John Hurd to kind of ask him, like, where were you? Who are you? What happened here? I think they do a really good job of kind of drawing you into that web of deceit. What else, Adrian? What about Daniel Sherman? Who? Daniel Sherman. You had his business card, the one I found in your suit pocket. Harvey said they traced the forgery to a guy with the same name. Harvey Schwartz. I'm your husband, and you're listening to Harvey Schwartz. Do you have any idea how many people hand me a business card in a day? Has it occurred to you that uh, Harvey Schwartz is just as much a suspect in this thing as anybody else? Harvey? <laughs> Sounds so astonished, and yet you suspected me. I didn't suspect you. Yes, you did, Adrian. No, I didn't. You just did. Yeah, and that scene actually leans into my other positive from the film, which is John Hurd. I really think that he was always good at playing characters that had some depth, where you, he could, like, you could feel he could flip a switch at any moment. And I think it made him perfect for that role. You know, there's a great introduction to his character as well. Like, the very first scene, Goldie's got stood up on a blind date, and John Hurd is across the restaurant and just kind of leering at her. And it, it makes for this really sort of cute moment. Like, I feel like he, he could be charming and menacing. Like, throughout his career, it seems like whenever he plays a character that's good, there's always still a little bit of bad in him. And then whenever he plays a character that's bad, there's still a chance that he could he could be good. You know, I, I mean, I, he was great in Beaches. He's, he was really talented. And it's, it's such a shame that he's no longer with us. But I really think John Hurd was a, a great talent. Yeah, I agree with you. I, you know, I, before, I think, the Beaches episode, I didn't know really who John Hurd was. And now seeing that I've seen him in multiple films and just didn't recognize him. Cause I think he's a good character type actor. And, and mm -hmm. when you're talking about it, he, he kind of is like a JT Walsh type character At, for me. Oh, great, great comparison, Chad. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I thought he was really well, really a good actor in this role. So I agree with you that that's a great, uh, great. I mean, and I, I think going into my next positive is that's what makes this movie also, uh, worth watching is like we, we mentioned the slow burn, but it's the actors who hold the story together for the most part. And, you know, we've also talked about actors we've rediscovered or discovered for the first time from watching touchstone films. Um, and Goldie Hawn's one of those that, you know, I, I knew, knew I know who Goldie Hawn is. Um, she was actually in the, the second movie that I ever saw at a theater. Um, it was a double bill of, Second film was Duchess and the Dirtwater Fox, her and George Siegel. Oh wow! Um, okay, but you know, other than Wildcats and Overboard, I and Private Venture, I didn't really know much of Goldie Hawn, and I thought she played against type very well in this film. I thought she held her own, and um, you know, as this wife who's trying to uncover the mysteries of her alleged dead husband and whether or not he was the guy that she thinks he is. And 
it really, I was really impressed with how well she did dramatic acting. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm, I've always been a fan. I, I will say, I, I mentioned it in our, in our introduction, but if you get a chance, I would highly recommend Foul Play. That's mm-hmm. the one. I believe it's her and Chevy Chase, mm-hmm. and there, there's a plot to kill, to assassinate the Pope. And she had they had to kind of thwart it and Burgess Meredith's in it. It's it's a really fun movie. I read it. I actually read an interview with her where she said that when she was going for that role, it was for Paramount and Michael Eisner was at Paramount. And he thought that she was what did he say that she was too heavy fat for the part? Yeah, yeah. I, read, I saw that. And it's like, oh, that's so weird because obviously Michael Eisner is now running Disney when she made Deceived. But yeah, and I, I, I feel like we're going to transition into the negatives because I didn't know where to put Goldie Hawn's performance. I wouldn't call it a positive or a negative. It was. I kind of had it in like a limbo state, like because one of the first notes I had when I wrote the film down when I was watching was she can never not be bubbly. And I think that word is that haunts her. I've I've, I've seen that word in several different reviews that I was reading about the film is that she's just she's just so uh, I don't even know what the right word for it. It's like giddy. Just just she's always goofy and laughing and smiling and giggling. And and I, I was wondering, like, is it is that good for a part like this or at the same time? Does casting her make the audience more sympathetic to her plight? Whereas if, she, you know, how dare you terrorize America's sweetheart, Goldie Hawn, you know? And because I feel like there are moments in the film where when her face just drops and you know that she's got like she has she can have an angry disposition if she had to. Like when she's talking to the guy at the Social Security office, when she's discovering that her husband was using a different Social Security number and all of a sudden she starts to kind of flip the switch and get a little bit mean. But I think my only issue was that I. I don't know. I just thought she was okay, you know, which I didn't think was quite good enough if you're going to have your name above the title, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, again, is it playing against type? I, all I kept thinking about was, Chad, have you ever seen Wait Until Dark with Audrey Hepburn? I, I have not. I, I'm familiar with it, but I've not seen it. That movie is fantastic, and it's for that same boat. Like, where she she's an Audrey... I mean, Goldie Hawn is kind of the natural progression of Audrey Hepburn in that regard, you know, but Audrey Hepburn plays this woman who's being terrorized, and she has to kind of to try to fend them off, you know? And I was thinking, there was also a movie I saw after Doris Day passed away, we watched a thriller that she was in. And so I, I know that comedic actresses can do thrillers, but I don't know. I just wasn't entirely sold on her. I liked her, but I wasn't entirely sold on her. So what do you think? Like, do you think, would you want to see her in more thrillers? Do you like this aspect of like playing against type? Or Yeah, I don't know if I'll go out and seek out other Goldie Hawn films, but uh, but I would be curious, you know, if, if she's in a film, um, I'm not going to uh, turn away, um, you know, from she's she's not an actress that I'll kind of roll my eyes at. But no, I, I think she had the chops. I just think um, I think, like you said, that she her bread and butter was the bubbly, goofy performance. And and so it's good for her to be able to show, you know. A different side, and even going back to Private Benjamin, which I recently rewatched, I don't think she was really goofy or bubbly in that film as much as you probably expect her to be. I, you know, I've never actually seen that one, so yeah, I, I know that the movie that she did after Deceit was another drama called Crisscross. I remember, mm. I remember the trailers for that one where she plays like a stripper and her son is like selling drugs. Mm. Um, but then after Crisscross, like pretty much the rest of her career is just comedies. You know, she yeah. does Death Becomes Her and, and the Banger Sisters, Out of Towners. Uh, I, I, interesting is you talk about rediscovering a character. She did, she's not nearly in enough movies as I thought she was. She mm-hmm. kind of picked and chose, you know, just one here, one there. But uh, yeah, it's always it is always kind of fun to see her on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, you, do you have any actual negatives of the film, Chad? I do. You know, we we've 
highlighted the acting. We've highlighted the slow burn story mystery aspect. But I have to say the story itself is very generic. It's, mm. you you know, you even when the mo- the plot gets set into motion, like I said, about 30, 40 minutes into, into it, you know kind of where it's going and what's happening. Um, so in, in that regard, I, I, I have a, I would have a hard time recommending this film for the story. I, again, recommend it for the acting, but the story itself, you're just kind of, especially, and I'll get to it in my next negative, you get to that climax and you're just kind of rolling your eyes at everything that's going on. And, and there's a scene, um, you know, the, the plot is about this missing necklace that has been stolen from from the museum. It's high. It's been placed in Goldie Hawn's apartment, and her kids are playing. She has a daughter playing with a friend, and they're playing dress up. And one of the kids has the necklace on, and she's like, "Oh, can I keep this?" And Goldie Hawn doesn't even look. She's like, "Yeah, sure." And I'm like, <laughs> "That just, it, it, you know, it's a scene that's there to just move the plot along, so yeah. that uh, when." The person comes looking for the necklace later. It's no longer where it's supposed to be. But yeah, this story, yeah. I, I, I think I, I sprained my eyes rolling them at some of the scenes in this film. Yeah, no, I definitely had some issues with the story as well. And I think that leads into one of my big negatives of the film is that I think it was just too gimmicky. And, and it's not a term that I use very often, but I couldn't help but escape it. The film is over-directed. You know, I mean, I, I like that Touchstone has taken a chance on directors who only had a credit or two to their name. We had it last time with Charles Lane and True Identity. But Damien Harris, I, I mean, I think he was he tried too hard to make something that would lend itself to like deep critical analysis. Like, there's lots of scenes with with mirrors, heavy shadows where the person's face is like half covered in shadow. You know, all these light, these crazy lighting effects, lots of shots from the ceiling of the room, these bird's eye view you know, I mean, I can appreciate trying something different and adding in your own aesthetic, but it was really distracting at times. Like, I don't know. I thought like there was a lot of like there's a lot of like long pans across uh, across the outside of a building, you know, and it's and there's no real like all of a sudden it just it just ends. You know, there was all these like mysterious appearances where a character would pop into frame and then they're not there anymore. You know, and I don't know if you know this, but there was at least two or three times in the film where a character is walking into an apartment or a house and they're looking for something and they're walking really slowly and there's like seven rooms in the house and the character and, and what they're looking for is in the final room, never in the first six rooms, it's always in that seventh room. But the camera has to make sure it slowly follows you into each of the first six rooms so that we could see what's in this room. Nope, not in here. You know, it's very, this, this kind of extended, elongated, suspenseful sequences that we're just like, okay, this is not, it's not working. Can you get to the point a little bit? I can understand trying to build suspense. Like you could tell that he's inspired by Hitchcock, but it was like, I think Hitchcock was pretty good about tightening things up like that. Yeah. And at the only other negative I had from the film is I think it's going to be probably your next negative. So let's, we could end on this part of the discussion. Chad, what is, what is the, the biggest negative of this film in your eyes? Uh, real, real quick. I'll point out that uh, a lot of reviews that I read of this film also pointed out the fact that uh, they use a cat for a jump scare. Uh, yeah. A few times, and that's like they said. That's just like filmmaking one hundred and one. That's you want to cheap, my, my cheap wife, effect. My wife pointed out. You know, my, my wife pointed out. She was just like the cat's only there for the scenes to scare you. Yeah. So that so that it's a quiet room, and all of a sudden the cat shows up. Yeah. You're, oh my god, that's so funny. <laughs> the reviewers caught that too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So my last thing, and 
I'm going to kind of lay this out. And Mike, you can tell me if, if I saw this correctly or not. So we get to the climax of the film. There's a uh, chase scene, for lack of better description. It starts off in the apartment, and Goldie Hawn runs out of the apartment, leaving the attacker inside the apartment, locks the door from the outside. <laughs> and yes. I'm just like, uh, can't the, the attacker just turn the knob and open the door? Like, And then... Yeah. She goes to the elevator. Elevator's taking its sweet time to get to her. So she goes down the fire or, you know, the stairwell, runs down like two or three flights of stairs. And then all of a sudden, someone comes jumping in from outside into the stairwell. So, uh-huh. unless it's Bruce Willis on a fire hose, I don't know how they got that trajectory to come in. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah. And then there's the final climax, which I will not spoil here. Um, just in case if you want to watch it. But I, I, my first thought was what just happened? Because this doesn't make any sense. And then my second reaction was to start laughing because it is just so over the top ridiculous. Yeah, that was, I, I had the exact uh, thing in my notes, which is just the entire third act, especially the climax is utterly ridiculous. Like, and like you said, I, I don't, the, trying to figure out the logistics of the final set piece in this apartment where it seemed like no matter where Goldie went, the villain found a way to get there first. Mm-hmm. But you're like, but he would have been in the other side of the complex. Like, I don't yeah. know how that works, you know. And then what's even worse is like like just the whole third act of the film where when you start to understand the motivations of the villain. I, I just I think you could really get confused trying to understand the specifics of the plot at that point. Because, I mean, I know sometimes it's like a MacGuffin, right? You just say, it doesn't matter as long as the characters are, as long as the thing is important to the characters. But when you're watching, you're like, okay, why would this person do that? And why would this why would this person murder people to get away with this? And then, yeah. What, what I thought was really funny was you mentioned that the climax is set in an apartment complex. Goldie leaves her apartment and heads into a neighboring apartment, which, of course, is under construction. And I thought that was funny because that's where the climax of Ghost takes place. Demi Moore has to leave her apartment and get to a different unit, which is also under construction. You know, and I also thought what was funny was, you know, we talked about it's off camera or off before we started recording. But there's really only a couple different characters who could be the villain. You know, is it Goldie's husband? Is it the Harvey character? And I feel like the Harvey character reminded me so much of Tony, Tony Goldwyn's character in Ghost where he was like the friend of the couple, but he may have had some sort of nefarious plans. You know, I don't know. It's but you're right. That scene when she leaves the apartment and locks it from the outside while the attacker is on the inside where he can easily just undo the lock and get out. I, I That seemed like it just it, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. And that's yeah. unfortunately it kind of undid. Like you said, we I like the fact that for our positive, we both mentioned how we like how the mystery was set up, but we also both hated how the mystery was resolved yeah you know which is just yeah uh so i mean from a final thoughts perspective that's kind of that was my whole issue with it it was just cheap suspense it was like something from an m night Shyamalan movie and it just had like a really weak payoff chad do you have any final thoughts before we move on i just that that ending i i I think it just needs a slide whistle sound effect to to really punch (laughs) it home Nice. Okay. Well, one of the things I always like to look at in, the, in these touchstone films is if the touchstone touch, what makes it different from Disney or were there any references to Disney in the film? I mean, obviously it's a thriller, so this never could have been a Disney film, but I did see that there was a 
birthday party for Goldie Hawn and John Hurd's daughter, and they got a bunch of friends over, and one of the kids is reading a Mickey Mouse storybook. So it's just real quick pan over. I'm like, oh, let's get to Mickey Mouse. Because, you know, I did not see Coca-Cola in this movie. I, I, I was mm-hmm. looking. There's a scene where John, John Hurd calls uh, to order Chinese food, and he says, no, we don't want Coke or no Coca-Cola mm-hmm. or something like that. But there's no actual bottles. But we see Coca-Cola in the next film. But anyway, uh, we've heard how Chad and I feel about the movie. But, Chad, what do some of the other critics <laughs> had to say about Deceived? All right. Well, let's start off with Roger Ebert, as I tried to do on on these and he says deceived opens with an ancient thriller formula elevates itself to passages of genuine suspense and then ends with a climax so absurd that it takes a real effort of memory to recall the parts of the movie that were really pretty good i will not reveal the end of this movie but practically everyone else who sees it will because they won't be able to resist laughing at it okay (laughs) and then uh I, the only other good review that I could find um, was from someone uh, by the name of Chris Hicks, who was writing for the Desiree News, Desiree, D-E-S-E-R-E-T News. Um, and they say, on the other hand, if you can just turn off the logic center of your brain and go with it, Deceived can be fun. Heard is at his oily best, and the supporting cast is also quite good. But any way you look at it, this is Han's film, and she carries it carries it well. And it's certainly more satisfying than Bird on a Wire, Overboard, or wildcats. Oh, oh, yeah. That's why I threw that in there because I disagree. I would because take I, those three movies any day. Absolutely. If you were going to rank these those four movies, Deceived is the fourth. Yes. And I mean, I mean, it's been a while since I see Bird on a Wire, but I remember that being a fun sort of adventure romance. Yeah, that's. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> All right. Well, then, so what do you think, Chad? Where do you come down on a scale of one to ten on Deceived? I, I think I may be rating this a little high. I gave it a four. I, I just. As we've said, I think it's a good thriller film that is just ultimately betrayed by its ending. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. I also gave it a four. I thought it was wildly illogical and just completely overstylized. But which is funny because like we talk about the limited number of touchstone thrillers, and I think that was one of the big flaws that I had with DOA. One of the other one of the other thrillers that they did was just too much style. It's just mm-hmm. you focus on the story. Uh, I would like to look and see if there was any potential for a sequel or a remake, you know, as is the case with most thrillers, you know, it doesn't need a sequel. And honestly, I don't see any reason to remake this, Chad, like, you know, just let it stand alone for whatever that's worth, I guess. Um, From a trivia standpoint, I could not find a lot on this film. I was really disappointed that I couldn't find out about why Joel Rubin used a pseudonym. Um, The only thing I did notice was that the film was shot in Toronto. I mean, they did a couple of exteriors in New York City. It was shot in Toronto, which I believe just like uh, Three Men and a Baby, right? That was also shot mm-hmm. in Toronto and doubling for New York City. And there's a scene early in the film where, um, right before the first murder happens, I believe, where there's an elderly member of the museum who's walking through the museum. And, and my wife and I both perked up because we immediately recognize it because we've been to that museum. It's the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. I think we went there before you joined us on our Toronto trip, but... Yeah, so it's always, I, mean, I guess, you know, Toronto gets used a lot for New York. Um, I was, look at the soundtrack, as I mentioned before, the, the jazz, it's mostly jazz music on the soundtrack. It's, it's really only in the background. I got to be honest, I was a little disappointed because the song Earth Angel links the characters. At the beginning, they're talking about how they both love that song. They're kind of singing along. But it wasn't really used again in the film. I, I, I looked on IMDb before the film started just to see what songs were in the soundtrack to get an idea of what I wanted to use to begin the episode. So I really thought that it was going to come into play 
when it was introduced at the beginning, but no, it never really was. Um, but so at least, hey, we get we get Andy Summers, and I do love the police a lot, and so it was nice to hear his, some of his music. Maybe I'll go discover some of his solo work. All right, let's just look at the box office. As I mentioned, it opened on September 27th, and it finished third with $4.3 million. The only other film that opened that weekend finished just ahead of it in second place, and that's Necessary Roughness, another movie that I think is one of the better football movies football is not a good sport it's depicted in movies it's usually over the top stuff like any given sunday but wildcats and necessary roughness are two gems i would say just from comedic standpoint the first place film that weekend was the fisher king and the doctor looking at the touchstone films the doctor was was 10th and paradise which had just opened the week before was still only on two screens so it was in 16th place um and its second week, Deceived stays in third place, but it gets leapfrogged by a new film, which finishes in second place, and that was Ricochet, the Denzel Washington. I think I saw that movie at a drive-in, but I do not remember anything about it. Um, the other new films that opened that second week of Deceived's release uh, was The Super with Joe Pesci, Suburban Commando, the Hulk Hogan, Christopher Lloyd film, and also Shout, the John Travolta musical. I saw... Um, well, I watched Siskel and Ebert's Worst of the Year of 1991, and I saw that they had put Shout on that list. The uh, scene does manage to stay in the top ten for more than a month. And I was looking at it. It's, I think it's likely due to a lack of thrillers in the theaters. If you look at all the other movies that were coming out around that time that were shuffled in and out of the top ten with Deceived, you've got movies like Frankie and Johnny, Little Man Tate, Other People's Money, House Party 2, Curly Sue, the Butcher's Wife. These are all, you know, comedies, dramas. So I'm wondering if maybe that's it was just sort of counter programming, right? Like the film's not terrible, I guess, but it, I was surprised at it to say that it's it was able to hover in the top ten for quite a while. Uh, by the time November of 1991 rolls around, it gets pushed out of the top ten with new films such as The People Under the Stairs, Highlander Two. And also another touchstone film that we're going to talk about on the next episode. But Deceive does leave theaters after a pretty decent two-month run and ultimately grosses $28.7 million. Uh, from a awards consideration standpoint, I, I found none. And then from a connections, I always like to see if there's any connections to other franchises that I like, like James Bond or Alfred Hitchcock. There's no James Bond connection. The Alfred Hitchcock connection is mostly just the TV series. We talked about Beatrice Strait, who was in her five seconds of screen time, she had been in two episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents in 1959 and 1960. And John Hurd was in an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents in 1985. And Kate Reed, the actress who played John Hurd's mother in the film, she's only in one scene like every supporting member of the cast. She was in a 1987 episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents as well. I could not find a personal connection either as well. Like I said, it was just I'd never seen Goldie Hawn or never got a chance to see John Hurd in person. And the rest of the cast was just, like I said, just kind of scattered around. Um I don't really know what else to say about this film other than, like you said, it's it's not I, – I can't recommend it, but if someone wanted to watch it, I wouldn't begrudge them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I I didn't like the movie enough, and if if I did make a recommendation, it would just be I think the acting's good and you need to see the ending just to see how a movie can totally undo itself. But I would not – I don't know if I would say you should spend the 120 minutes or so, whatever the film is, uh, out of your life to, to do so. Just uh, if you're really curious, go on Wikipedia. I'm sure someone has typed up what actually happens at the end. And yeah, go on and, and, and watch our next film instead.
<laughs> so that was deceived. Are you telling me that your office applied the contributions to the wrong social security number? No. Maybe you'd like to have somebody here. Do you have a lawyer? A lawyer? What the hell are you telling me? I'm sorry. I just don't quite know how to say this. The man with the social security number that your husband claimed was his died 16 years ago in Somerville, Nebraska. No. We don't know who your husband was, but we definitely know he was not this Jack Saunders. We've been deceived, and now, Mike, sadly, it's it's time to say goodbye to one of our beloved franchise players here at Touchstone. With a heavy heart, I introduce Ernest Scared Stupid. From Touchstone Pictures, monstrous trolls have sprung to life. That's your hope you're from Keebler. And now, Ernest P. Worrell is springing into action. He'll try anything. I know Tai Chi Kung Fu Chow And everything. Your shoes untied. To save the day. It's showtime. Yeah. It's Ernest P. Worrell in a brand new movie. Ernest Scared Stupid. How about a bumper sandwich, booger lips? You know what I mean? Starts Friday, October 11th at a theater near you. Yes, it was released on October 11th of 1991, three weeks before Halloween. I want to talk to you about that when we get to the box office later. But as Chad has mentioned, yes, it's our, the final touchstone film for Ernest P. Wuerl. And we get a return of what I call the Ernest Players from the previous Ernest film, which was Ernest Goes to Jail. That came out in April of 1990. We have John Cherry, uh, Jim Varney's longtime partner, who was back to direct he also co-wrote the story. The other story credit in this film goes to Coke Sams, which is another longtime collaborator who had co-written the screenplay for Ernest Goes to Camp. He was also a co-producer and second unit director on the previous Ernest films and was a producer for the Hey Vern, It's Ernest TV series. Do you think he got uh, I, the job just because his name is Coke and this is a touchstone picture? I, that's pretty interesting. That That's one of the few instances of Coke in these two <laughs> movies that uh, we usually see in touchstone films. Um, the other screenplay credit, along with Coke Sam's, goes to Charlie Gale. And he had had two prior writing credits before this point. He had a co-story credit on a 1984 film called Making the Grave, which Chad and I saw years ago, and I'm pretty sure we both loved it. That's the uh, Judd Nelson film? Judd Nelson, one of the first appearances on screen of Dice Clay. Yeah, that's yeah. a good That's a good movie. film, yeah. That was, a, that was yeah. a good gem, good find. Yeah, and then the other credit that Charlie Gale had was the screenplay credit for a 1991 horror comedy called Guilty as Charged. That's another one of those ones that I think you might need to watch mm-hmm. and report back because I watched a trailer and it looked like that. It kind of looked like a trauma film <laughs> where it was like, it's like, Rod Steiger and Lauren Hutton and Heather Graham and Isaac Hayes. And it's sort of like a horror film where there's these, there's a prison and there's these people being killed and turned into food. It's just, oh, it sounds really, really goofy. Speaking of really goofy, of course, who's back to play Ernest? The great, the late great Jim Varney. It's his first film since Ernest goes to jail. Like this was, this was his thing right now. He, he branched out. I believe he does Beverly Hillbillies a couple of years later. But, uh, yeah, he's back again. And acting opposite him is the legendary Eartha Kitt. She stars as Old Lady Hackmore. Uh, You know, her career goes all the way back to the 1940s. Numerous TV and stage appearances. She had six songs, cracked the Billboard Top 40 between 1953 and 1954, including 
two songs in the top 10. One was called Stacey Ball, and the other one was her cover of Santa Baby. She got an Emmy nomination as a guest star on the TV show I Spy in 1965. She starred as Catwoman in the final season of Batman. According to IMDb, she's only in three episodes. For some reason, I had this image in my mind of her doing a lot more, but just three episodes all she did. Then she goes to Broadway, and she was nominated for a Tony Award for Best Actress in a Musical in 1978 for Timbuktu. Her film work was somewhat limited. She had she'd been in St. Louis Blues in 1958. She'd done a black exploitation movie in 1975 called Friday Foster. Uh, the last theatrical release she had done before this was the 1989 film Eric the Viking. Those are the two main players in the film. The supporting cast is is filled with actors who had appeared in a lot of previous Ernest films, with the notable exception of the great Gaylord Sartain. He's really missing in this film. He, he played the character Chuck in the last two Ernest films. He's, he's replaced by a character called Tom, who's played by John Cadenhead. He was in uh, UHF before this. But we have Bill Berg is back to play Bobby. I did see, you know, I know, Chad, I know you're a big Gaylord Sartain fan. And I was wondering, like, maybe did he did he kind of get big time? Because in 1991, instead of doing Ernest Scared Stupid, he appeared in two big studio pictures. He was in Guilty by Suspicion, the Robert Redford movie about the McCarthy trials, I believe. And then he was in Fried Green Tomatoes as well. Now, as far as the, the plot of the film, I did see, you know, I want to give one more shout out to this wonderful podcast that I listened to called Ernest Goes to Podcast, where it's this it's these two friends and they go really in deep in depth with these films. They come from a place of love. It's 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 a wonderful, wonderful listen. And they mentioned on the Ernest Scared Stupid episode that Disney had wanted to make a haunted house film with Ernest. But John Cherry didn't like the idea and he countered with the idea of a cursed town instead. And what's funny is there's a scene early in the film in which these bullies destroy the, the, the kids make a haunted house and the bullies destroy it. And so they were saying, like, could that have been like a symbolic way of the director to be like, we're destroying this haunted house, just like we destroyed that haunted house idea that you gave us. Um, the working title of the film was was actually Ernest Scared Stiff. But, yes, yeah, simply put, he plays, what is he, a garbage man? And he accidentally he tries to build a treehouse with these kids. And he accidentally unearths this these trolls from the ground because the, the town is cursed. I, I yeah something like that right I can't I, <laughs> I mean it, it takes place in Missouri so I, you and I both being from the Midwest we can I, I can attest to the believability of this film yeah and I thought that's one of the issues that I had with the film is that it kind of it reminded me a little bit of Ernest Goes to Camp where it was like it's we're back being aimed towards kids because mm-hmm. I really enjoyed Ernest Goes to Jail and I that was pleasant because it seemed like that was a little bit more adult themed. But if we go into our positives, I'll just lead off and say that, that to me, the main positive of the film is Eartha Kitt. Like, she is absolutely magnetic and owns every scene that she's in. You know, I mean, sure, the, the material's kind of weak, but she doesn't let that hold her back. Like, she is a consummate professional and lifts up all the actors around her. And you, you get that, that sense just from the very first scene when Ernest comes to her house as a garbage man. And he's been told by the mayor that he's supposed to to get all the garbage from the front of her house, but they're not, it's not garbage. It's like these, these really intricate sculptures that she's been developing. And she just, like I said, she has this commanding presence and we get that right from her introductory scene. What are you doing here? Ma'am, I'm just here to pick up all this garbage. Got no garbage here. Only the expressions of the soul. Ma'am, I'm an official representative of the Briarville City Government and incidentally a close personal friend of Mayor Murdoch's. Aren't you that Warrill kid? 
Yes, ma'am. Oh, you will bring down the curse on us all. Woe to you, oh, you see the world. Get out of here and don't come back. I wish you'd reconsider. Recycling is a very important part of good citizenship. Yes, and you'll be a dead citizen when the poisons of the evil causes through the portals and channels of your body, you will lie a quivering, toxic mass of screaming flesh. They will have to load you and the rest of this backward town on a meat wagon with a pitchfork! So, in other words, it might be better if I came back another day. Yeah, there's not, you know, kind of like going back to Deceived, there's not a lot of good acting in this film, although Deceived did have good acting. But... The number of actors, maybe, is what I'm trying to say. But Eartha Kitt, um, another actress that, yes, other than playing Catwoman, don't know a whole lot of her body of work. But, the, you know, she did well in what she was given to do. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, so she definitely definitely one of the few positives in this movie. And, and I, I want to start off before I get into to my positives to saying, like, I, I'm having a hard time with positive and negatives in this in this film for this film, just because of, um, I'll get to it in my review, but yeah, this is a, this is a hard one to do. And <laughs> one of my only positives is, I don't know if you caught it, um, during the film or if you, you know, read about it afterwards, but the city slogan for, um, this town in Missouri is it's on Ernest's, um, city vehicle as well as I believe the police vehicle but the city slogan is ignoramus ad infin- infinitum <laughs> I did see that yeah and I don't know why maybe it's because like you said this is a kids movie that doesn't hold a whole lot for adults but that made me chuckle when I saw it um, so I'll say that um, yeah that's that's, that's one, my one positive or one of one and a half positives that I have for this film yeah, I, I, I agree. I had a hard time. You know, I, I try to enjoy these movies. I try to go in with an open mind. And that kind of leads to the other the other positive that I had from the film, really, which is that I, I, it seems like his movies, with the exception of Ernest Goes to Jail, mm-hmm. they're aimed mostly at children. Yeah. And I think that, that really complements Ernest's childlike innocence, if you will. You know, and I, I love the uplifting aspects of these films. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a good message. And this one in particular, like, well, I don't want to be a spoiler for the end, but the message of this movie is really sweet. And that is that evil can be conquered by love. Yeah. Like, you know, like it feels like in the other, like in Ernest goes to camp, he's got, he got to win over the the developers, you know, Ernest goes to jail. He's got to, he's got to find his way out of jail. You know, whereas this one is sort of like, there's this big battle scene at the end with these trolls. And rather than just beating them physically, you have to beat them emotionally by, by, by loving them to death, more or less. And I, that's that, I think that was something good, especially when you're trying to aim it at a, at a young audience to get them to, understand hey we should try to be more positive and and uplifting and that's something that 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 the Ernest and Jim Varney I guess always wanted to get across and, and it, de- it definitely gets across in this film mm-hmm. I, I totally agree with you and I have that written in my final review thoughts but um and I see you know based on the rundown I think we both had the same last positive which is the special effect work um oh, sure. the the troll uh, the the trolls in the film look really good, you know, for a, I'm sure this was shot on a relatively shoestring budget, but some of the practical effects that are used, I, I was really impressed with. 
Oh yeah, it's it's the Kyoto Brothers who were who had just come off of the film Killer Clowns from Outer Space. You know they and they're still doing something. They, they did some of the puppet work for Team America. They're they're thirty some odd years. I, I think they just put out a, a digitally animated Christmas movie that aired on Netflix. Hmm. So they're still working. Yeah, that's definitely one of the highlights of the film. But you know, um, but unfortunately, there are more lowlights than highlights in this one. Uh, I'll just go. My first negative is is something I couldn't get past, which is that it seems to be a little bit too terrifying for the target audience of children, you know, like seeing these kids being turned into wooden dolls by trolls. And, and like, there's a couple different scenes where the trolls jump out. Like there's some good jump scares, almost better than the ones in deceived <laughs> where you're, fi- you find yourself going like that. That might be a little much for that, that target audience, which, which seems to just appreciate the goofiness of Ernest. Yeah. I don't know. I thought that I would think if I would seen this movie when I was a kid, I mean, granted, you and I were in high school when this came out, so it might not have been so bad. But if we would have been in grade school, I don't know if I would have been more terrified than charmed by it, you know? Yeah, and I've read, you know, that's part of the blame or what they, you know, put the blame on for the low box office um, results, which we'll get to later. But, yeah, there, there's a scene where the girl, which is um, actress Shay Astor, who I, I recognize from Third Rock from the Sun, she was Joseph mm. Gordon-Levitt's girlfriend in the – later seasons um she's you know she thinks there's something under her bed she looks it's just her stuffed animal but then when she rolls over the troll is laying there and yeah that you know that that had that gave me flashbacks to poltergeist where, <laughs> they, where the kid finds his uh, ventriloquist dummy is out and so i can totally understand that you know even though this is a kid's movie like it may not be for young kids it may be a bit too terrifying but Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I, and going off that, I just, I don't know what it was about this film, but something in the way that it was shot or the way it was edited, it just felt like a Saturday morning kid show. And mm. I, I don't know if, if anyone can, you know, kind of understand what I'm saying, but it just didn't feel like a theatrical film. It just felt like something cheap and, um, you know, that you would see play after cartoons and before Say by the Bell uh, on Saturday morning. But... Yeah, okay. that's so. Been, I, I think that that hindered also the effectiveness effectiveness of the of the movie itself. Yeah, maybe it was building off of the success or lack of success of the Hey Vern, it's Ernest yeah. TV series. Yeah, and I think and that kind of leads into my next negative. Um, not only did it feel like for, it was for kids, but I just really thought that the majority of the jokes just fell flat. And that's just my opinion. I know comedy is subjective, but. Um, I'm sure you probably agree with me that the movie is seriously missing Gaylord Sartain. Oh, you know, totally. I always, I always looked forward to his appearances in these films, and I think he, they definitely could have used his comic relief in this one. You know, and it seems like some of the other movies, you know, the, the other characters that Ernest plays, the other personas that he has, including like Auntie Nelda, which is he brings her up in some of their previous films. Like for whatever reason, the other characters don't really appear in the film. They only are not. They don't appear as characters. They appear in these, these like non sequitur mm-hmm. cutaways when Ernest is telling a story, you know, rather than rather than trying to be like worked in as a sight gag for Jim Varney's immense comedic talent. Like it, there was no opportunity for him to pretend to be somebody else. It was just he's got to, uh, you know, fire up the kids to help him save this town. And it just cuts to these other characters. Like it's almost like they they figured, OK, well, we got to get in the uh the British guy, we got to get in the fighter pilot, we got to get in the, you know, and it's just, it was like, I don't, I don't understand. Like they tried too hard and they, it missed some of the charm of, of what I liked in those previous Ernest films. Yeah. yeah. And I wonder if those are characters from the Haver and TV show, like if they show up and so if they try to put them into this movie, 
based on popularity, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure that's I mean, it's probably bound to happen when you're looking at comedy vehicles for stars who can do like multiple personas mm-hmm. and accents and faces. But then it's like, OK, good, we got We got to get it in there somehow. And it just it just didn't really work. Like they could have they could have made it where they were other townspeople. But instead, they just chose not to. And they just said, make it. It was just it's really awkward. It's like something from Family Guy where they're just having a conversation. And then it cuts away to a, a totally different character. But, yeah, I, did, I just didn't like that part of it. Yeah, and then the final negative that I had, unfortunately, is just that standard dumbed-down plot and characters that you see from the previous Ernest films. And it just doesn't have the heart and the good nature, as I mentioned, as well. You know, it, it, made, it makes a really predictable film even more boring. And I want to give a shout-out again to Ernest Goes to Podcast, because they pointed out something that I hadn't really, really noticed, is that it seems like in the previous films that Ernest does, he's, he's, he's popular. Like, people like him. But he has there's an adversary of some sort, right? Like it's just he's got to get the you know, developer at the camp, or in Ernest goes to jail. There's the the other guy that's impersonating him. That's but yet the, his coworkers seem to like him. Maybe his boss doesn't, but he's got friends. Whereas in this movie, it seems like he's despised by the entire town because there's a curse, and it actually makes for one of the one of the great cutaways mm-hmm. at the beginning of the film when the little girl is telling the story of the town and how they're cursed so that every descendant of Ernest of Ernest's great-great-grandfather or whatever is going to get dumber and dumber, and then it cuts to a shot of Ernest. That's a good smash cut there. But it just seems like, you know, the fact that they put stupid right there in the title, like maybe it would have been better if it was Ernest Scared Stiff, but it's like they're just basically trying to show how dumb he was and how, like I said, the whole town hates him. And it just it gives the film more of a kind of a mean-spirited nature that some of the other films didn't have. It was more like I, I always thought of him like, a, like, like an idiot savant, and the other movies where people look at him as like maybe like Doc Brown from Back to the Future. I know there you go, a crazy genius inventor who's got who has a lot of friends who are who are kids. But in this movie, it was sort of like he was more of an outcast than he was, you know, as just sort of this eccentric, quirky guy, I guess. And I just I don't know that kind of bothered me. Like it was I, I didn't I wanted something more more uplifting and positive. You know, it's got a positive message, but I just didn't like the the the, the, the setting, I guess. That's good. I, I hadn't even considered that, but I think you you hit the nail on the head on that one. Well, before we move on, Chad, do you have any final thoughts on Ernest Scared Stupid? You know, this was a disappointment because this is the fourth Ernest film. And, you know, looking back, I think we were split on Ghost to Camp. I thought it was a fine film. You didn't like the humor um, in that one. Uh, both of us thought uh, Saves Christmas was a, a you know, acceptable film uh, that, Ernest was shoehorned into, and then we both really enjoyed uh, Goes to Jail. So I was expecting the same progression, and unfortunately, we got a few steps back with uh, Scared Stupid, and it's really unfortunate. Yeah, and I think that was that's what, all I kept thinking about was how this is what I thought Spaced Invaders was going to be mm-hmm. when we started the podcast. Whereas that movie held my interest and won me over, this one was just—it's a, a mess, and, I, and I'm kind of glad to forget it. Yeah, and that's a shame. But um, we, we look at that presence of the Touchstone Touch. You know, like I said, other than being slightly terrifying for kids, I mean, this could have been a Disney film, and it makes me wonder why the Ernest films aren't on Disney Plus. Not a sponsor. You know, I, I'm wondering if it's a, if it's a rights issue, you know, or if Disney hasn't like considered a, a reboot of some yeah. sorts. Like, I, I, I don't know. It's the, these feel like Disney movies, and it's just a popular Disney character. Yeah, and I, think, I believe it was a year later, Hocus Pocus came out. And so, oh, yeah. And there's a lot of similarities between the two films. I think maybe, you know, Hocus Pocus 
had the benefit of Scared Stupid coming out before, and so I could kind of tone down and, and try to get the tone better for a Halloween film. But um, yeah, I think yeah. both of these, Hocus Pocus and Scared Stupid, are very similar in the story that they're telling. Well, we 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 said how much we felt disappointed with this film, but what did the other critics say? Chad, do you have any reviews on the movie? You know, I almost thought this was going to be the first film that I couldn't pull reviews for because I only have two, and I had to reread the the reviews like three times each to to find something that I could pull from them. Um, shockingly, our good friend Roger Ebert did not review this film, at least that I could find. Did you see, Chad? I saw that that Siskel and Ebert reviewed Ernest Scared Stupid. It's the only movie they ever they ever reviewed of Ernest I, because it was the only movie that Roger, Roger Ebert had not seen the previous Ernest films. Yes, I, I had read that, but I could not find Roger Ebert's review either in print or on the Siskel and Ebert TV show. So. Yeah, I looked for the Siskel and Ebert clip, and it's not on there. Yeah, well, not, not on the website. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, well, We'll just have to settle for two uh, two other reviewers. The first one is Rita Kempley of the Washington Post. They simply don't come any slower than Ernest P. Worrell. The Global Village Idiot created 2,000 commercials, two TV shows, and three movies ago by actor Jim Varney. Yet the goodly simpleton apparently still has IQ points to lose in the redundantly titled Ernest Scared Stupid. Alongside the silly kitty Halloween comedy, reruns of Hee Haw seem works of great comic sophistication. Ouch. And then the only other review I could find from the Austin Chronicle says, This movie is good for two or three laughs for adults who will find it surprisingly bearable. Kids will undoubtedly relish Ernest's stupid shenanigans more. Although the scares in this movie are minimal, Ernest Scared Stupid nonetheless offers the frightening prospect of yet another installment of the Big E's misguided antics. Any bets on what it will be? How about Yankee Doodle Ernest? Or maybe Ernest Arbor Day Adventure? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's I, I like I said I I I don't know if I really laughed at all I didn't think it was very funny mm. I thought it was kind of gross it's it's I think it's really strictly for the earnest aficionados and yeah. that's why maybe I'm being harsh but on a scale of one to ten I gave this film a two Ooh. out of ten ouch um, I I said I feel bad assigning this a number um, because clearly this is a kid movie aimed at kids anyone over the age of twelve is not going to get anything out I. I kind of cheated. I just went down the middle. I gave it a five because I'm, wow. like, I'm like, it's it's not good dish, but it's also not terrible if you're within the age range that it's geared towards. So, and I did the overall message at the end of, you know, all the world needs is love. And I think maybe, you know, the, the world that we're, we were living in when we watched this, it's something that resonated and, you know, it's my, you know, the philosophy of do something positive kind of set with me. But, yeah, I, I feel bad writing, rating this movie because, again, it's it's total kids movie. If you don't have kids, you're probably never going to watch this film, nor should you. So, yeah, I feel like when it comes to a scale of one to ten, I was I was thinking about what to give the seed. And I, I figured five, five is, would mean that I'd want to eventually watch it again. Mm. Anything over five means, oh, yeah, I'll see it again when the time comes. If it's below five, because I was like, well, the scene was at a four or five, and I'm like, I don't think I want to see it again. So yeah. I gave it a four. I, they, they, when it comes to Ernest, I really – I will definitely watch Ernest Goes to Jail again. And if Ernest Stage Christmas comes on, around Christmas time, I could sit through it. Yeah. But Camp and Scared Stupid, I, I don't want any part of them no. again. Yeah, it's understandable. Um, yeah, well, we always look, look at 
sequel and remake potential. I did see that Disney had signed Jim Varney and John Cherry to a four-picture deal, but this was the fourth film, and they declined to pick up the options. So as we mentioned, this was the last earnest film for Touchstone. They would go on to make five more films with that character, though, beginning in 1993 with Ernest Rides Again, and that was the last Ernest film to be released theatrically because it, it made, I think, only like a couple of million dollars at the box office. Yeah. I did see that there was a possible reboot entitled Son of Ernest, which, which mentioned somewhere around 2012, but nothing has come out of it from there. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm interested in seeing any of the other films. I mean, I know there's, is it, is he in the army? Then one of them where he goes to Africa. Yeah. I'm, I don't, I, I, I'm worried that there'll be trending downwards. <laughs> After Ernest goes to jail, I don't know if I could bring myself to. Have you seen any of the other five? Out of curiosity, I, I have not. I know they are on. I believe Hoopla, which is where we watch Scared Stupid. But yeah, uh, yeah, there's one about Ernest goes to school, and I just I'm, I'm with you. Funny. I think they would just be too too low budget, which is not a bad thing. But I, I just don't think they. I, I think it'd be like watching a Saturday morning TV show for ninety minutes, and I just don't feel like doing that right now. Yeah, I feel like I could enjoy the commercials. Yeah. And I believe he they did an early movie. I don't know if it was just something straight to video that was called like Ernest uh, Family Album mm. or something along. The, yeah, the, it's Hey Vern, it's Ernest Family Album. And I'm like, okay, that would be like where he unveils a lot of those characters. That might be kind of clever, but the, the movies just aren't really well plotted enough, I guess. You know? uh, from a trivia standpoint, as I mentioned earlier, the trolls were created by the Kyoto Brothers who had famously done Killer Clowns from Outer Space and also the movie Critters. And supposedly, some of the heads of the Killer Clown characters were reused for the trolls in the climactic scene from the film. And then I thought you'd appreciate this. I saw this on IMDb's trivia section as well, that the, there's a scene where the, Ernest, the, 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 the kids that are friends with Ernest, they're flinging pizzas at these bullies from a treehouse. Well, supposedly, there's, those props were reused from... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. I never saw that movie, Chad. Did you see that one? Do you remember pizzas being used as props in that film, I'm sure? I mean, I saw that in the theater, and I just imagine, you know, the turtles love their pizza, so maybe they ordered too many. Lots of leftovers, yeah. Um, From a soundtrack perspective, there really isn't one to speak of. And to be honest, I was a little disappointed because I really liked the songs from Ernest Goes to Jail. There's a couple of them by Bruce Arntzen, who does the score for these films. But there was there was nothing. That's why I found myself having to go on IMDb to look with the soundtrack of Deceived to figure out, okay, what can I use to be in this movie? But okay, well, we'll look at the box office. As we mentioned, it opened on October 11th, which was Columbus Day weekend, and it finished in fourth place with just over four million dollars. The other films that opened that weekend were Frankie and Johnny, Shattered, the Tom Berenger thriller, uh, The Taking of Beverly Hills. I think I saw back in the day with Ken Wall. And then there was also the limited release of Little Man Tate. Uh, the number one film was The Fisher King, which is still number one with uh, Deceived was, was in theaters or premiered in theaters. And the second week, Ernest Scared Stupid drops to fifth with the release of Other People's Money. And I did want to point out that the second week of Ernest Scared Stupid released, there was another film that came out. It was buried in the box office chart somewhere around 17th or 18th, only played in theaters for two weeks, made about a million dollars. Chad, did you happen to see Cool as Ice when it was in the theaters during its brief run? Uh, no, I did not see that in the theater. I did not see that until a few years ago when uh, I believe you – did you did we rent it or did you I buy the it. DVD first? Uh, yeah. 
Yes, so. I bought it. It came. I bought it, it was from a company in Singapore, and it came with a copy of the CD soundtrack. So I'm, I'm really happy with that purchase. I've since bought the film on digital. We love Cool as Ice, but I remember mm-hmm. seeing uh, trailers for that and being like, "Oh man, he's going to make this movie." They they just couldn't get it out fast enough <laughs> because you know Ice, Ice Baby was earlier in 1991. But I, I, I was surprised it, it 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 couldn't even crack the top ten, and it was in theaters for like two weeks. Yeah. Okay, back to Ernest Scared Stupid. It. <laughs> And it's third week, it drops all the way down to ninth. It, put, it gets pushed down by new releases, films we discussed uh, earlier, House Party 2, Curly Sue, Butcher's Wife. Um, I did see, I wanted to ask you your opinion on this. In 1991, Halloween fell on a Thursday. So November 1st was the beginning of the, was, uh, the weekend. It was the fourth weekend of Ernest Scared Stupid. And it was finished in 12th place that weekend. And I was wondering, like, when you have a Halloween movie, when what, what's a good time to drop it? Like, they, this movie came out three weeks before Halloween because I was thinking, like, could it, would it be effective to come out closer to Halloween so that if the movie, if the, the kids go to their trick or treating, they could still go see this like after it? Like, I don't know. I, I, I'm not big on horror movies as much, but do, is there is there a set pattern that you've seen when it comes to releasing horror films in October? I mean, I would say any time in October, but probably at least two weeks out just to kind of build word of mouth and, and unless you have a franchise piece that you're going to open and, and expect it to be completely front loaded over the Halloween weekend and then drop off because your, your Christmas movies will start coming in mid November. So, yeah, I don't know. It just seemed like, I don't know. It, I wonder if they had high hopes because mm-hmm. it feels like if you just seen this film and it's finished state, you, I would have thought they'd be like, oh, let's just put this out as close to Halloween and, and cash in on the revenue from those weekends. Because I did see that, that the number one film of the weekend of November 1st through 3rd was The People Under the Stairs, the Wes Craven horror film, which, I mean, why that came out, that didn't even come out in October. So they seem to find a way to make it work. Um, but unfortunately, Ernest Scared Stupid leaves theaters early November. It only grosses... $14.1 million on a budget of $9.6 million. Mm. I did see that this was the first Ernest film to gross less than $20 million, and it also had the highest budget of any of the Ernest films. So, yeah, I could see why this it would have been easy for this to be the final film with Touchstone. Uh, well, obviously, there's no awards considerations mm. to look at, and no one in this movie was in a James Bond or an Alfred Hitchcock movie. There's no Young and, Actors Award consideration for this? Yeah, I'm surprised. We didn't get the, the Young Artist Awards uh, snubbed Ernest Scared Stupid and unfortunately no personal connections as well I mean these movies were shot in Nashville with the, the, the what we call the Ernest Players you know I'm hoping there's a chance to you and I could ever meet Gaylord Sartain I mean, it, wasn't, it wasn't in this movie but I, I would love to ask him about those experience on the Ernest movies but uh, yeah for, for so for now I guess we'll he'll ride off into the sunset he'll reappear on video in, throughout the 1990s but uh, that was the last Ernest film for Touchstone Pictures You've got to stop him before he gets the children. He's got to get five before midnight tomorrow night. Me? Stop that thing? You got the wrong guy. You are the direct descendant of the Reverend Phineas Worrell. It's your legacy. Yeah, but I'm me and and he's he and we're talking real danger here. Stand and deliver. Fire in line. Moment of truth. End of the line. Eighth level Mario Brothers. You are the only troll fighter we've got. You're the seventh son of the seventh son. You're the baby. You're the boy. You are the great redneck hope. So in conclusion, I always like to look and see if the films we discuss would fit the Disney ideal. You know, it's funny. Chad and I, we, we both didn't really seem to care for these movies, but I totally respect Disney for making them. Like, you know, like I mentioned before, I give them a lot of credit for making a thriller, 
You know, this was they had they were trying to focus too much on comedies, and also the fact that they took a chance on a young director in Damian Harris, and they they they, they cast a woman against type. You know, a, a star who was only known for for doing comedies. So I I I think it was a good idea on their part, Chad. I mean, you think deceived, specifically deceived. I mean, would this fit the the ideal of what they were going for with Touchstone Pictures? I think so, and I you know you listening to you just now, you brought up something that I think we should have hit on in our discussion. I didn't even think about it is um, I wonder what the rewrites were. You know, you kind of mentioned how it had a very similar ending to ghost. I wonder what um, Donahue's original script, how that ended. Cause I would be yeah. curious to see, to, to, to find an original script and, and, and read it to see how that ending differs. And um, if we can, I thought the same thing who we can blame that, that ending on. Yeah. Yeah, I thought the exact same thing. I actually did a little bit of Googling last night to look and see for Mary Agnes Donahue's The Mrs. Mm -hmm. script. And I found one, but I don't know if it's just the shooting script or something. Mm -hmm. So I was going to flip through it and see. But yeah. And then from from an Ernest standpoint, I, you know, I will give Disney some credit for hitching their star to Ernest at just the right time and then cutting bait with him at the right time as well. Right. I don't know if it was was. You know, when you have a character like that, I, I feel like there's, there's going to be a short shelf life, right? Because mm -hmm. the kids that, that are watching it are going to grow up and they're going to outgrow this character. And I don't think he had enough of an appeal for adult audiences. Yeah, yeah I'm totally with you that I, you know, because the first one came out, Ernest Goes to Camp came out in 1987. So here we are mm -hmm. four years later, four and a half years later. Yeah, I think Ernest had um, pretty much outlived his his shelf life. Yeah, if you if you'd have seen Ernest Goes to Camp when you were in junior high, by now you, they would, you'd be in high school, mm -hmm. and you probably wouldn't find him as, as charming, I guess, which is sad. But I mean, I mean, I would like to. I, I'm not. I, mean, I would be opposed to a reboot. I, I would like to see them sort of bring back a similar character in, in some vein, you know. But I mean, I, I don't know how that would happen, and maybe it would have to be some sort of a Netflix deal. But we'll see. Um, I always like to look at the films that released by Walt Disney Pictures during the same time period. Uh, Hollywood Pictures and Walt Disney Pictures had nothing. This was September October. On the next episode, we're going to discuss one of Disney's biggest films, which came out opposite a couple of Touchstone films. Um, but what Touchstone films are we going to discuss on the next episode? Well, we've got a, a gangster thriller with an all-star cast, and we also have a remake of a classic family comedy. What movies are those? Well, you're just going to have to tune in to find out. Once again, my name is Mike DeKalb. You can find me on Twitter, at Mike DeKalb. I also run the Out of Touchstone Twitter account. It's at Out of Touchstone. If you want to shoot me an email, it's out of touchstone at gmail.com. My co-host Chad Smart, he's also on Twitter at Chad Smart. He's the proprietor of the Positive Cynicism Podcasting Network, the PCPN. So we're, we're getting to the end of 1991. We're, we said we've seen some thrillers. We've seen Ernest. Uh, Chad, any final thoughts on what we've gone through so far? Uh, 91 is shaping up to be an interesting year. I'm, I'm looking forward to our next two films because I have not seen them. And, you know, I, I just think the touchstone for better or worse, other than, you know, one of the early, early films that we watched, I can't think of a film that I've actually just hated watching and felt like I've completely wasted my time. I can always try to find at least one glimmer of hope in each film. And, and I hope that that continues here through this next year of doing this podcast. Yeah, I feel the same way. We had, like I said, even if we have complaints about these movies, we still find something that we like. So, once again, for Chad, I'm Mike. This is Out of Touchstone, and we are out of time. Don't run out of touch. I'm out.
Out of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, visit outoftouchstone.com. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool, thank you, good night.